For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. This is the word of our great God. Let's pray. Now, Father, by your Spirit, own this your word. May it work powerfully in our lives today. We pray this in Christ's name. The term deconstruction is awfully popular, it seems, today. Now, what is meant by deconstruction is not the same thing as demolition. Exactly. We're not talking about tearing down buildings. We're talking about tearing apart language. We're addressing the matter of whether or not written communication is even a possibility. While most who engage in it have no idea where it came from, Jacques Derrida, a French philosopher, drove a wedge between language and meaning. The matter of what an author intended is impossible to know. The content of the author's writing is in some sense meaningless. We assign meaning to it, or rather, to take the current version, oppressors assign meaning to it. Now, the upside of this rather postmodern approach to language was that even they recognized they were articulating something that led to their own demise. What happens when you apply deconstruction to the deconstructionists? So there was a wink and a nod, and on their merry way they would go. But at some point... Some of scholarly bent with more time than good sense wedded Marxist ideology with postmodern understanding and thus was born what we know as critical theory. Now I know some of you say, that's awfully simplistic. Well, yeah. But if you think it's tough listening to me preach, you ought to have to listen to me lecture. You would really have a hard time with that. Besides that, it's a quagmire. But the outcome of that critical theory, whether applied to race, colonialism, gender, or whatever, is we find ourselves in a time period in the history of humanity, especially here in Western civilization, that we're watching the death of civilization. And we're watching things that some are trying to embrace and make somehow 
Christian, and they're embracing really, in essence, what will become the destruction of Christianity. At least anything approaching Christianity as it's been understood for 2,000 years. Young people, I, I say to you, you have people out there encouraging you to consider deconstruction, to consider, and they say some of the wildest, most foolish things. Yeah. And because they have letters after their name, people assume they're smart. Well, they may be, kind of. But when I hear people say, well, there was no such thing as really this Western Christian theology until Constantine put it together and it was all about power, I know that they're a twit. Now, I know that's not a scholarly term, but I know they have not done their homework. They haven't done the work. I know some of you are saying, wait a minute, is this a lecture on Western Civ and current American culture? No, I'm trying to set a picture here for you. I'm trying to frame something for you. What is the basis for Christians to affirm, to confess, to believe what we say we believe? Now, some think this is very easily answered by the old hymn. You ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. And some of you just got excited because you hope we're going to sing that, and we're not. I hope never, ever, ever again, ever. Because that, my friend, is the pathway to the destruction of Christianity. It is purely experiential. You don't have to answer hard questions. You don't have to engage hard issues. You have privatized Christianity and made it individualistic to such an extent that it actually becomes less, far less, than what the text of Scripture or what the Lord Himself intended for Christianity to be. Now, I know that sounded a little harsh, and if you love to hum and sing that hymn, I'm not going to take issue with you. In one sense, I guess you could say there's some truth to this. But, my friends, what we are affirming, what we must affirm, what Peter is affirming here is that there are actual, objective, real answers to why we believe what we believe. Actual events that took place in time on earth to which there were witnesses, and it comes to us verbally. Now, never downgrade the extraordinary reality of human verbalization and communication. You understand that evolution, for all of its vaunted answers, cannot answer the question of how human beings developed language. There is no agreement. Francis Schaeffer, Christian thinker, said this back in the 1960s. It is still relevant today. Christianity has a different set of presuppositions. It begins with a God who is there. 
I love that. A God who is there. Not made up. A God who is there. Who is the infinite personal God. Who made man in his image. He has made man to be the verbalizer. In the area of propositions. In his horizontal communication to other men. Even secular anthropologists say that somehow or other. They don't know why. Man is the verbalizer. You have something different in man. The Bible says, and the Christian position says, I can tell you why. God is an infinite personal God. There's always been communication before the creation of all else in the Trinity. And God has made man in his own image, and part of making man in his own image is that man is the verbalizer. That stands in the unity of the Christian structure. Now, Please understand, those of you who are doing a little digging into this postmodern milieu, you'll, you'll say, well, well, language is abused by tyrants. Of course, they're tyrants. History is abused in the same way. Of course it can be. But that does not mean that understanding is impossible. Christian young people, do not allow yourselves to be gaslighted by this anti-Christian culture. Don't for a moment think they don't have presuppositions and prior commitments before they start doing their deconstructing. Oh, it all sounds very cool, and it all sounds very hip, and it's all this very cutting-edge stuff to be assaulting these things and saying, well, your parents, they're just not, they don't get it, they're just dumb. They really don't understand. They don't recognize the oppression. They don't recognize the victimization. And my response to that is, oh, my, my soul, have you no humility? And the answer, of course, is none. Peter is telling us something here. He's, in a sense, echoing to these believers what he said in 1 Peter 1, though you've not seen him, referring to Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. I appreciated Rob's words in the call to worship. I do wish Rob would get excited about things a little bit, though. He just, I, do, I just wish he could get a little energy. Greg Bonson said it this way, what the world calls foolish is in reality wisdom. Conversely, what the world deems wise is actually foolish. The unbeliever has his standards all turned around and thus he mocks the Christian faith or views it as intellectually dishonorable. But Paul, as well as Peter, knew that God would unmask the arrogance of unbelief and display its pitiable pretense of knowledge. Here's what I'll ask you, my friend. When you see these people who make all these claims, here's my question. When you look at their lives, do you see lives that are any better than yours? Do you see relationships that are any better? Do you see that somehow these folks are doing things that are useful and helpful in this wide world? And I'm going to tell you over and over again what you're going to find is these folks are as big a mess and a bigger mess than most everybody else you know. I know. Boy, that's a long ways to go. We've got to Poor old fisherman here talking about stuff. And Doug, you're covering issues of civilization and philosophy and theology and worldview. 
Yes, I am, because that's exactly what Peter does for us right here. That fisherman knew. You see, we want to trust our experiences rather than the witness of the apostles. That's where we want to start. We want to start from man and reason from man and out of our experiences and let that drive us. The reality is the Christian faith is based on objective, witnessed realities. Do you get that? The Christian faith is anchored, based, settled on objective realities. First consideration. The truth and apostolic testimony. Verse 16. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Cleverly devised myths. You know, we find it frustrating and amusing when children reach their intellectual peak and conclude that their parents are hopelessly outdated ignoramuses. But I'm here to say that we behave that way as a culture toward our past. We look at those who have come before us and we assume they are hopelessly ignorant. They simply didn't know what we know. And yes, there is some truth to that. One fellow estimated it this way, probably the most brilliant philosophical, theological mind that America ever produced was a fellow you may have heard of named Jonathan Edwards. Having read Edwards, I'm here to tell you the man lived and thought at a level that is a struggle at times to follow. Edwards, in his entire lifetime, possessed less knowledge of his contemporary world than is contained in the average newspaper of a major city for one day. This is the comparison. What he understood about the world around him, what he grasped about all of civilizations and governments and all the things going on in the world, all of that stuff together was probably the equivalent of what exists in one single New York Times daily edition. He had no internet. He had no web to surf. And yet, my friend, because of what he did know, he was one of the best Christian thinkers ever. We think because we have all this vast amount of information, we are somehow better. And I'm here to tell you, folks, the vastness of our information has not produced better people. The vastness of our information has not made our lives easier to live, necessarily. Now, I'm, I'm not opposed to modernity, not in that way. I like air conditioning. I like drive through restaurants. I like a variety of ice cream. 
I like nice roads and comfortable vehicles. I like travel. But my friend, we ought to be careful here looking at this and deciding that our history is filled with ignorant people, including those in Scripture. Peter talks about cleverly devised myths. There were myths in his day. Paul will reference the same things. 1 Timothy 1, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Or 1 Timothy 4, 7, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Now, we don't have to go into all of this, but you've got to know that in Peter's day, all the Greek god myths were still around. And there are all sorts of other philosophies that were competing. And Peter says, we believe something remarkably, categorically different than these cleverly devised myths. The fables and legends in Peter's time, he says that's not what they either believed nor appropriated or in some way taught. The believers of the apostolic period were not intellectual children. They had seen cheats and phonies before. They had heard fantastic tales. They knew of the stories of Greek heroes and gods. Peter plainly says, how does he put it, verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The apostolic witness was to his power and his coming. Power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. His power. They had witnessed miracles. The commanding of nature. Jesus standing up in a boat and telling a storm to hush. And it hushed. Demoniacs, mad with energy and strength and terror, restored to sound thinking. Limbs restored. Blind people seeing. Deaf people hearing. Dead people getting up. Not as zombies, by the way actually made alive again. A happy meal turned into a banquet for thousands. They had seen his power and his coming. Both his first advent, the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and his second. Later in 2 Peter, he's going to say, knowing this first of all, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And in a sense, power and glory were a description of the same thing. It was saying that in his coming, you see both power and glory. Might. And majesty, we witnessed these things. This is the matter of truth, my friends. These things happened. Second part, second consideration. Not just the truth and apostolic testimony, but 
the transfiguration and apostolic testimony. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. At the end of verse 16, Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, do you understand the truth claim Peter is making here? He's anchoring his words that he's writing, the commands he's giving, the good news he tells in actual, factual reality, what Schaefer called true truth. Not made up truth, but actual propositional truth. Specifically, he refers to the transfiguration. Now, by the by, you did catch on, right? In the response of reading, we did Mark 9, the transfiguration. And both Matthew and Luke record the same event. Now, let, let me point out a couple of things here. In Matthew, there's a, this phrase, is how he talks about it. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And then a little later, a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then Luke. Luke says it this way. The appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, literally his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And they, they were asleep, it says. They saw his glory, and I love this. They saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Did you catch that? They saw his glory and the two men who, who stood with him. When the voice speaks, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. The apostles were eyewitnesses. Peter, James, and John go up on the mountain with Jesus. Now, Peter calls it the holy mountain. He's not saying they were at Sinai. He's saying the mountain became holy because of what happened at the mountain in his thinking. He wasn't trying to say that we ought to make pilgrimages to whatever mount this is. It was holy because of what happened there. But he's also picking up language that would have been part of their heritage. They were not only eyewitnesses, they were earwitnesses. They heard something. Now, this comes after Peter's confession in Matthew 16. You remember Peter's confession? Jesus asked the question, who do men say I am? And they get all these responses. Who do you say I am? What does Peter say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus starts talking crucifixion, and Peter messes it up, Right? Mm. But after that event comes the transfiguration. And for some reason, Peter here 
looks at that event specifically as demonstrable proof of who Jesus is. Now, why? I mean, he, the resurrection is proof, and he, he doesn't deny the resurrection, but somehow in Peter's mind, as he's thinking about this, there was something very powerful going on there. In Matthew 16, he makes the confession. And it's earlier, you recall, when Jesus first calls the disciples, they're out fishing. And they couldn't catch anything. And finally, they, Jesus gives them direction from the shore, and they catch fish. And Peter gets to the shore, and what, is it? He comes, what does he say to Jesus? He kneels and says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Why? What's going on? Now, I know we sit back and we look at the disciples and say, oh, those poor, dim-witted, dense disciples. You know why you recognize that, don't you? You recognize you. Didn't they get? It was coming little by little. But folks, when they got to the Mount of Transfiguration, something powerful is happening. They see the glory of the Lord Jesus revealed along with heavenly testimony. It was so indelibly etched in Peter's memory, he never got over it. This echoes John's testimony, 1 John 1. That which from, was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we've seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Why am I hammering this? What's the significance of the transfiguration? Number one, it gave the apostles encouragement about the kingdom. Jesus has already told him, some of you standing here will not die till you see the kingdom coming in power. And I think this was the first demonstration of the kingdom to them coming in power. The appearance of Jesus. He is metamorphosed. He is transfigured before them. And he is the central character. Now, I know people always, well, now, how do they know it was Moses and Elijah? Moses and Elijah have been dead for years. How do they know? They had name tags. I don't know. I don't know how they knew. I don't know whether Jesus spoke their names. Doesn't matter. But somehow, these deeply Jewish men, covenant men, if you will, New, that's Moses and Elijah. But who's the one transfigured? Who's the one that is glorious? It's Jesus. Now, Peter's response at the end, Lord, let's, let's, let's build a retreat center, right? Let's get some tents up here. And one, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah because he didn't know what else to say. And some of us are like that. When we don't know what to say, we say stupid things. The voice of the Father 
not about Moses, not about Elijah, but about Jesus, my beloved son. I know, okay, why? What? So what's the big deal? Oh, Peter knows his Old Testament. Peter knows Exodus 19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. So all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. And Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. (laughs) Now these boys, they're up on the mountain. And Luke tells us they've dozed off. And when they wake up, uh uh-oh, what? They see the Shekinah, the glory of God not descending on the mountain but revealed in Jesus the language is specific it doesn't say there's something poured on him it is something revealed he is metamorphosed he is changed in front of them Moses doesn't have the glory Elijah doesn't have the glory The law and the prophets didn't contain the glory. The law and the prophets are pointing to the one true God. And the one true God who descended on Sinai has now walked among men, having been born of a virgin in a manger, walked among those men, gone up on the mountain, and now it is God displayed. And it is not God displayed to their destruction. They're not trembling in fear. There's not a blare of a trumpet. The mountain's not trembling because God has come among men. We beheld his glory, glorious of the only begotten of the Father, filled, what first? With grace and truth. For Peter, this is Sinai. God in the flesh. And when the voice speaks, it does not come down with ten words of the law that make them shake and tremble. Where they plead, Lord, you know, don't let him speak to us anymore, Moses. You go talk to him. We can, he will die if he talks anymore. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Not listen to him and Moses and Elijah. Listen to him. Everything in the new covenant is in and through him. 
Now, why? Why do I hammer on this? This is confirmation of Peter's confession, but it gives Peter an insight he didn't have before. It strengthens Jesus for his coming suffering. Both the law and the prophets pointed to him. He'd fulfill their anticipation. They spoke with him, Moses and Elijah, of his coming and of his exodus. Our struggle today is that we want some kind of an experience-based religious thing rather than a word-based Christian life. I am not denying that there's such a thing as experience. What I'm saying to you, my friend, and I'm trying to echo Simon Peter here, is the experience we are to embrace is that of the apostles who give us the Word of God that we are to believe and in faith trust that what they saw, they actually saw, was real and true. And God has walked among men, and His name is Jesus. We don't believe myths. Nothing here cleverly devised. 2,000 years and a myth has survived, and men and women and children have willingly died for a myth? That is madness. What I proclaim to you today is not anything other than reality. Had you been on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, you would have seen, you would have witnessed the very same thing. And this, my friend, is the faith we embrace. This is the witness we believe this is the experience written for us that we define all of our experiences by this revelation you want to live faithfully tell me i wonder why i always talk about reading the bible always talk about getting in the bible always talking about because my friend you and i are loose and at large and dangerous without it we just do dumb things, and we think dumb things. And there's a world trying to press on us and change us. It seeks to capture us. We have an enemy who would gladly see us sidelined, believing in a privatized religion that has nothing to do with life. But my friends, hear me. This vigorous, glorious gospel of Jesus Christ is about eyewitness events that really, truly happened. There really was a man named Jesus. He really did claim to be God in the flesh. He really was crucified, dead. He really is alive. And he really is coming. Are you ready for that coming? What do you believe? Maybe more importantly and more accurately, in whom do you believe? Oh, Christian, don't let anybody convince you you're an ignoramus that believes in myths and fables. The world around you is the one filled with fable and myth. We believe certainties, realities, and they are eternally significant. Oh, that we might rest in this word and believe that witness. Let's pray. Our Father,
we see this, we read this. Our prayer, Lord, is that this be more than merely words to us, but rather this is saving. And that we would stake our very lives on it because that is truly what this is about. Father, I pray that you would save our young people from the wicked and foolish philosophies of our own age. Grant them wisdom to run from liars, even well-intentioned ones. For all of us, I pray that we would confess faithfully and apologetically and without fear. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the only Savior of the world, that we would rest entirely in Him. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing. All glory be to Christ.